0: So I would say the major obstacle in covering this information at this point is the fact that it is constantly evolving. You know, you would think you have covered this aspect of disinformation and tomorrow you wake up and there's just another branch to eat and you have to find innovative ways of combating it.
1: Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Hayen, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota. And today, we are continuing our new podcast series by interviewing some of the amazing people Global Minnesota connects with as we work to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. On today's episode, we are joined by two of this year's World Press Institute International Fellows. The World Press Institute was established in 1961 to strengthen and promote the founding principles and best practices of journalism. Each year, WPI brings together 10 professional journalists from all over the world and immerses them in the governance, politics, business, media, and culture of the United States. While they journey across the United States, they learn about the roles and responsibilities of the U.S. media while engaging in the life and time surrounding them. Global Minnesota and WPI will showcase all 10 of these individuals at a Global Journalism Spotlight event at 6 p.m. on March 23rd at the Minneapolis Central Library. The event is free, but advanced registration is encouraged at globalminnesota.org slash events. So today, I'm proud to welcome Ms. Fauzia Tukur, a senior journalist focusing on disinformation for the British Broadcasting Corporation from Abuja, Nigeria, and Mr. Saqib Tanvir, social media editor for the independent Urdu newspaper based in Islamabad, Pakistan. Welcome to Minnesota, and it's great to have you both on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. So first, uh, could you each just tell me a little bit more about yourselves and what really inspired you to go into journalism in the first place?
0: Um, so like you said, uh, my name is Fozia Tukur. I'm a senior disinformation journalist with the BBC in Abuja, Nigeria. My job is essentially to monitor, um, report and investigate disinformation campaigns, disinformation stories, conspiracy theories uh, being spread online uh what inspired me to go into journalism uh i grew up listening to the radio every morning my mom would turn on her radio i listen to the world service of the bbc so i grew up hearing those voices you know hearing the stories about not just the african continent but the World, you know, I was in a little city in Nigeria oh. called Kaduna, but I would hear stories about China, about the United States, about India, and it was just so fascinating to me that the little voices in that little box, you know, could tell me so much. And then I was fascinated by how people were in the box, you know, because as a child, I thought there were people in the books and those people <laughs> were the ones speaking to me. So yeah. I guess that's, that's really what inspired me to want to go into journalism. And then I grew up and started to write stories and fell in love with books and the love for stories and to tell stories. So that's, that's basically how it started for me.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm from Pakistan. Pakistan is a South Asian country right next to India. Uh, So in 2007, 2007, Pakistan was undergoing a political crisis. Uh, There was a lot of uh, political agitation on the streets. There were protests against the government. And the government came down hard on uh, the journalists who were essentially covering those protests. And, you know, back then I was a university kid. I was going to the high school. And, uh, you know, journalists back then emerged as heroes who would stand up to the, the, to the tyrants, essentially. It was then I really fell in love with the profession and I thought, you know, somebody who can stand up to power there can be no better profession than this. So that's when I started writing for English newspapers, op-eds, and columns. Uh, but it was formally in two, uh, 2011 when
1: I joined a news organization. Uh, as a producer. That's great. And actually, that leads into my kind of next question for you both. But uh, Saqib, what does journalism in the media look like in Pakistan? You alluded to that a little bit about kind of standing up to power, but um, maybe if you could expand on that a little bit more. Uh, So
2: Pakistan has a very vibrant media landscape. We have around 135 uh, channels. And out of those 135, we have around 40 to 45 news channels. And news is something that's uh, really like an entertainment for an average Pakistani because everybody is so interested in daily news. So uh, uh, we have a lot of news organizations, a lot of TV channels. We have around five to six major newspapers in the country. But in terms of vibrancy, uh, we have uh, some amount of, not some, you know, a lot of censorship. Uh, and most of that is self-censorship as well. And that self, uh, and that censorship comes from essentially, you know, the powers that be, uh, the uh, the political and military establishment. Uh, they are the ones who are the untouchable. And we really can't say much about them. But, but still, journalists have a way of getting their points across. You know, they may not name the army in their stories, but they would use words like establishment or, you know, the powers that be. So, you know, people could get the message across. So... Um, We we face a lot of problems, it's uh, essentially one of the most dangerous uh, places for journalists. Uh, One of our journalists, if I can narrate the story, he was, uh, he had to leave the country because of threats from powerful people. He went to United Arab Emirates uh, and there he also received threats including, according to some reports, the UAE government uh, pushed him out of the country saying that you can't stay here. And he went to Kenya. He spent like a month in hiding in Kenya, and later he was assassinated there. And you know, uh, some of the people, uh, in fact, his own family, alleged powerful people in Pakistan, were having him you know, assassinated there. So yeah, that's one example. But there are other examples of you know journalists, who you know, really standing up and uh, doing their job and staying in the country. So yeah, that's that's
1: us. I'm really sorry to hear that. That you're right. Speaking truth to power is, um, you know, it's a lot harder in some countries than others. And it sounds like there's some very high stakes there. Uh, What, I guess maybe if you could just expand on what types of things are censored in in Pakistan? Is it just political coverage alone, or is it anything that the government might deem as um, unworthy for?
2: I would correct myself. It's essentially not the uh, political establishment, but it's the military establishment. So you can Hmm. So anything you want about politicians, you can, you know, uh, mud sling, uh, uh, sling mud on them and, you know, say all you want. But when it comes to the military, you really have to be, uh, you really have to be careful, careful what you say.
1: I see. Thank you for that. It's okay. Fazia, what about in Nigeria? Is it kind of a similar situation? Is there a lot of censorship there as well?
0: Um, I wouldn't say it's as much as it is in Pakistan, but yeah, we have seen cases where journalists are silenced, uh, media houses are pressured into, you know, retracking their steps as far as news concerning the government or some powerful person. Um, And a very prominent case is one of a journalist who reported about a governor that uh, was seen on hidden camera. He was taped receiving bribe and stuffing it into his pockets. Uh, the journalist that reported that eventually had to leave the country secretly because he said he was facing threats. He was um, being followed, and he was scared for his life. So we've seen cases like that. Um, there are also government agencies that, as opposed to monitor media, they come for media houses, they come for journalists, and they say you can't report on that or. You know, we don't want to report in on that. So, yes, there is censorship and um, journalists are being threatened every day. Uh, just about two years ago in 2021, and this is a very good example of censorship, Twitter was banned from Nigeria for six months. And we know how powerful and important social media is to, you know, dissemination of information for journalists and media companies. So the country went 6 months without Twitter because the platform took down some posts by the president. Um so yeah we see we see that too in Nigeria but I wouldn't say is as as big as it is in Pakistan.
1: How do you work around that? You know, do you find ways to to report on similar types of stories without giving too many details that might become censored? Do you go around those stories or do you just decide to publish them anyway and hope that um, that you don't suffer any uh, negative consequences.
2: In Pakistan, you know, uh, we tend to have, you know, a smart policy about it. I mentioned the word self-censorship. And self-censorship is essentially yeah. what we do it on our own. Every journalist has his own red line. He has defined that, you know, uh, this is something that I should not touch upon. because It might have great consequences for me.
0: Um, Yeah, I think almost the same thing in Nigeria, we like I work for an international media organization. I work for the BBC in Nigeria. So I wouldn't say we we don't face as much pressure as the one faced by local media organizations. But um, yeah, we take statements from politicians, from government agencies. And when it comes to investigations or in-depth reporting, we give them a right of reply and we give them the evidence that we have. This is what we have. This is what we found out. What are you going to say about it? You know, but then again, I work for a media organization, so we have some leverage. We have some advantage over local media.
2: Adding on to it, uh, you know my uh, my statements would come across and uh, paint a very gory picture of how journalism is working in Pakistan. but you know, uh, I'm quite optimistic in uh, in the journalism in Pakistan, and we've produced a lot of content, a lot of stories, a lot of even academic literature that has, you know uh, uh, revealed and you know uh, uh, criticized the military. most of our most of our political commentators, you know, whenever they write in English, they, they, they tend to be really critical of the army. So despite all those issues, we have a lot of you know, pushback from some of the, the journalistic, journalistic community who really, you know, uh, who, who really doesn't want to see its face to the military.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really encouraging to hear that, that you are so optimistic about journalism in Pakistan and, and that you're finding ways, both of you are finding ways to get around these sort of censorship um, it certainly helps, of course, to to be a part of an organization versus an independent journalist. I would imagine there's a lot more risk involved there. But um, kind of, as you as you mentioned, that self censorship becomes such a difficult problem, and and not just in places like Pakistan or Nigeria, but you know all over the world where there may not necessarily, in some cases, be laws on the books saying this is you know illegal and we're going to censor you for it but there's other ways to apply pressure to journalists and media professionals to essentially prevent them from reporting on a story before it even begins. So I think you're right. That is, that is definitely one of the bigger problems out there.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, Nick, uh, um, when you started talking about censorship
2: in Pakistan, you must have noticed I used the word uh, establishment. I did not directly use the word military. And that's, that's unfortunately how we've been programmed, how careful we are when we use the word military. Because the first word that comes to our mind is not the direct association to the military. We have to use that term. Um, we have a point for ourselves to you know, keep ourselves safe. So That can give you, an, you know, uh, a taste of how we think and how we operate.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Even the very word, the way in which you describe it has to be um, coded in a sense. So, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, observation there. Fauzia, what are some of the most difficult obstacles you've had to overcome while you're covering disinformation for the BBC? Because I know disinformation is another very large problem, just like self-censorship throughout much of media in the world today.
0: Yeah. So I would say the major obstacle in covering disinformation at this point is the fact that it is constantly evolving you know, you would think you have covered this aspect of disinformation and tomorrow you wake up and there's just another branch to eat and you have to find innovative ways of combating it. So because it's a a new phenomenon, you know, disinformation. And like I said, it's evolving. It's more like an ecosystem. Point, the way disinformation works, because there are so many layers to it, there are so many actors to it, so many players. I would give you an example. Um, a story that I, I covered recently is um, the, the one about political parties in, in Nigeria hiring social media influencers to spread disinformation, which is of course deliberate. When you say disinformation, the spread of it is deliberate. And when you say misinformation, mm-hmm. it's when someone spreads fake news, not knowing it's fake news or not knowing it's not true. Yeah. The reason why that story was very difficult was because there were so many, there were so many nuances to it. So you have the political parties, who work with uh, digital media companies, who work with politicians, who work with campaigns, and it's a big industry, you know, it's so big that, you know, for an unsuspecting user on social media, consuming this disinformation, they would think it's harmless, they would think it's, it's just news, they think it's just information on social media. But it is so coordinated, so well planned that an unsuspecting user would not know. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that covering disinformation goes beyond just getting the facts. It ha- You have to have a certain expertise in open source intelligence. You have to have expertise in using tools that are able to give you information that you may, not necessarily, you may not necessarily think it's disinformation. You have to have that in-depth knowledge of how disinformation systems work. And for a country like Nigeria, where the literacy level is low, um, you know a lot of people are on social media just for the fun of it and they're consuming this disinformation and this fake news it's so hard to be able to convince one that is so bent on believing a certain thing and i mean disinformation even gets to people that are very educated and convincing people that it's it's fake it is very hard it is it is very hard and then when you have actors that are people that are trusted you know the government institutions well respected people in the society all take part in this dissemination of disinformation it's very hard to to report it, number one, and very hard to convince people. But then disinformation, I think the for the BBC, the purpose of having a disinformation journalist or dis, a disinformation reporter is to not just find these disinformation campaigns, but to find who are sponsoring these campaigns, who are behind these campaigns, and why they're doing it, and then tell people how to spot that. So I think we're on the way to doing that. We're not winning the fight against disinformation at this point all over the world, not just the BBC, not just in Nigeria, all over the world. You know, Like I said, it's an evolving phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I think that's, um, you really kind of hit it on the head with the problem of it, you can have all the facts on your side and even the evidence on your side, but it doesn't really mean anything if the people themselves don't want to believe it. I think that's so much of the problem with disinformation I'm If they don't want to believe it, then they simply won't. Um, but I was I was really quite fascinated to hear that it's almost institutionalized, as you said, right?
0: Oh yes, it is. It is, and experts have described it as an industry. So it it hmm. is and it is an industry, it is an ecosystem with so many actors and so many players, and that is why it's very hard to combat.
1: Sakeep, do you have kind of a similar phenomenon in Pakistan as well, that uh, you find certain uh, establishment actors are actually perpetuating the disinformation as well?
2: Yeah, uh, so um, it's almost the same. Uh, So the military has its own military, uh, its own media wing, uh, which is responsible for, you know, creating a narrative in favor of the military. They not only, you know, uh, operate on social media, but in terms of you know what Fozia was saying, and it's quite interesting how um, how disinformation operates. In my country, you know, uh, and not just in my country, I think it's everywhere. People have become uh, so much opinionated and polarized that they, they only consume information that confirms their bias. And uh, there will come a time when the disinformation will will be so much that people would actually want to have authentic information, and they would actually be willing to. To pay for that. So I, I do hope that that,
1: that this day would come soon. But I guess as you both are kind of traveling through the United States, I know you, I believe you both just uh, got here not too long ago, but so far, what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned about the United States or about Minnesota in general?
0: <laughs> for me, I would say that it still snows heavily in March. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's- not not just March, April too. Yeah. Oh, you, well, you see. So that's kind of really surprising for me because um, I would have thought, you know, by now we're kind of easing into spring, but now everywhere is so white. Um, yeah, I guess that's the most surprising thing for me.
1: Yeah, one, one would think we should be done with the snow, but uh, not for a while yet. So uh, this is my first time here in Minnesota. And uh, I've seen that the life
2: here when I compare it to the, To to my own country, or even to New York or those places like Los Angeles, the life there is so much uh, you know balanced, so much stable. It's not that fast-paced life that you have in Manhattan. So yeah, for me, uh, the life um, I was expecting it to be a really you know fast-paced, more tuned to the technology, latest technology, but somehow it's not like that here in Minnesota. I don't know why. Maybe you can tell.
0: I just thought of something else. Um, I mean, growing up in Nigeria, uh, one of our major problems has always been our roads. Our roads are filled with potholes. And I had always had this vision of you know, developed countries like the United States, not having any potholes because I mean, we look up to the United States and the United Kingdom. And then I'm here in Minnesota and we're driving through the roads and we're falling into deep potholes. And I had to ask one of the families that are hosting us and they said, well, yeah, it happens every year because of the snow, Um, the snow kind of, because it melts and goes deep into the roads, you know, and they explained to me how the potholes um, I know it's different from what I I know at home, because for us, it's a lack of management of the roads. But yeah, it's still surprising, you know, to see potholes on American roads.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very much <laughs> not just the snow, but um, all the road salt that's really a little bit corrosive and the snow plows come in and just kind of scrape up the, uh, you know, the roads there. So that Unfortunately, that is why we tend to have quite a few potholes in Minnesota. Um, maybe it's not so much everywhere else. but So um, I guess I want to turn it back to you guys and, and hear a little bit more about where you're from. Um, so maybe, Saqib, if you could start, what's something you wish everyone in Minnesota knew about Pakistan?
2: So I don't know the, uh, the general impression about Pakistan here in Minnesota. Uh, I haven't interacted with a lot of locals yet. But uh, but the general perception about the general impression about Pakistan world over is that it's not a safe place. It's really, uh, you know, when you think about Pakistan, you think of Afghanistan, you know, there are no roads, there, there's this desert and there's no development. It, it's really very far from the truth. I think uh, for me, I think I would really want the world to know that Pakistan is really a vibrant place. It's really, uh, uh, you know, tuned to the technology. It's a really urban, youthful population there. Very uh, progressive population that's coming up—the millennials and even the Gen Zs—they have, you know, uh, come up with this uh, new culture. Uh, it's a really vibrant place, and I really want people in Minnesota, you know, to just just to visit Pakistan, and you will know what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. So, I would like people to know that not all Nigerians sit behind a computer and type an email that they're a Nigerian prince and they've been left a huge inheritance.
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I I believe Nigeria doesn't even have a prince, correct? No,
0: we don't.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so we're very enterprising people. We're very talented and very, very hardworking. Um, you would see a lot of brilliant Nigerians all over the world. We have a Nigerian in the United Nations, a Nigerian is heading the World Trade Organization at the moment. You know, a lot of brilliant people. And then we have an amazing, amazing, amazing talented youth. We have the best musicians. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard some of them: Born a Boy, Whiskey, David O. <laughs>
2: I would
1: disagree with that. Not
0: the best musician. Yeah. Our music is good. Our food is good. And I would mm-hmm. love for, pe- for people um, in Minnesota to go visit Nigeria. Uh, weather is great. It's warm. We have beaches in Lagos and other cities. you love our jollof rice. It's so, so good. You have to try it.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we would all love to visit uh, both Pakistan and Nigeria, especially right now with the snow falling and, and hearing about warm, sandy beaches, uh, I could definitely see myself going there. Yeah. <laughs> so lastly, uh, for both of you, what are you most looking forward to to learning as you travel across the country? Because I know you have a few more stops besides just Minnesota. So what are you really looking forward to learning the most about?
0: Uh, for me, I would say I would love to immerse myself more and understand the true American culture. I've met a few people already um but as I go down to New York you know Miami LA I think I would want to see that side of the US um here in the Midwest is that what it's called yeah (laughs) yeah so here in the Midwest the people are so welcoming this ever so ready to help, you know, and tell you more about this region. I would love to know more about the other regions as we travel and, you know, meet with other journalists and media companies and see and understand how they operate, which is quite different from what I know from the little, you know, from the little that I've visited here and the few journalists that I've met here.
2: I would really uh, want to know more and um, more about the business model of journalism here in Pakistan because in uh, here in the U.S. Because in Pakistan, uh, uh, journalism is currently facing a financial crisis because there are no sustainable financial models. So I'm really
1: interested in knowing how, how the U.S. is tackling this issue of business model. Great. Well, hopefully uh, we can provide you with some insight on that uh, throughout your travels and you know, to both of you, you, you'll definitely get to understand the wide variety of geography and cultures throughout this country. It's it's a pretty large country, and there's a lot of a lot of different areas, you know, kind of as you alluded to, um, each one with their own slight differences in culture that, you know, hopefully you can come to know and appreciate throughout your travels. Opazia and Sakit, thank you so much again for joining today and for everything you do to bring these important global stories to our attention. Thank you, Nick.
0: Thank you for having us.
1: That's all the time we have today. You can hear even more from Fazia and Saqib, along with all of the World Press Institute fellows at our upcoming public event at 6 p.m. on March 23rd at the Minneapolis Central Library. The event is free of charge and will also be streamed online. You can register online at globalminnesota.org events. Thanks as always to all of the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. And be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find more information about upcoming events Learn more about our international programs and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And lastly, a big thank you to the World Press Institute for their incredible work to foster and protect international journalism. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.